It's exciting to be here. Um, we're getting to the end of the book of Ruth. This will be the 21st sermon in this particular book, and we are nearing the end. Um, hopefully, we will finish it in September. But then after that, uh, Tom and I, Pastor Tom and I, have uh, worked out a sermon series out of the book of Psalms. And we'll be alternating with key Psalms all the way through the book. And we're going to be marching through that together. So you'll be hearing more about that a little bit later on. But we've been working on this now for a little while. And we're pretty excited about to get into that. So he'll be doing a psalm, and then I'll do a psalm. And then he'll do part of a psalm, and I'll do another part of the psalm. And it'll just kind of go back and forth like that. But there's so, so much rich material that's there. But for our purposes this morning, we want to get back in the book of Ruth. So if you have your Bible... You want to have it ready here to begin with. And at the early part of this message, I'm going to be doing a Bible drill. You remember Bible drills? Years ago, they used to have Bible drills, how fast you can look up a verse. Well, we're going to be doing that early on here, how fast you can look up a verse and uh, look at this. So have your Bible ready. Let's see how well you are acquainted with the Bible. Big question here to begin our message here, entitled... Boaz's planned strategy from Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Is it possible for you to care and love for someone who is detestable to you? Is that possible? To love and care for someone who's detestable to you. Now, if you have a transformed heart by Jesus Christ, it's not only possible, it's necessary. There's a true story about a Jewish man by the name of Yeshiel, and he had the opportunity to meet his cousin's wife, her name was Sandy, who was dying of leukemia. He said peace filled her heart and a love radiated from her life that gave her a special glow. She was the first real Christian I had ever met, Yeshiel wrote. She was different. I would question her, and all she'd talk about was Jesus. Later, he heard the gospel on the radio, received a Bible. He read Isaiah 53, and the Holy Spirit convicted his heart that the prophet was actually speaking about Jesus, the same Jesus that Sandy spoke about with in glowing ways, the same Jesus that Sandy knew, Yishiel recalls, quoting him, I believed in the Lord Jesus and became a completed Jew. A year and a half later, Ishiel said, the Lord gave me his love for my enemies, the PLO who murdered 37 of my friends. Now, if we were to take Ruth and we were to place it in our contemporary culture today, Imagine yourself being a Jew today in Israel, just for a moment, and Ruth is a young PLO, Palestine Liberation Organization, who had murdered your friends because Ruth was a Moabitess. She was an arch enemy of Israel, at least the Moabites were. Now, in order to help you understand our text today, I think you're going to have to have a little bit of background and a little bit of theological history in order to do that. 
So we're going to take a look at several verses. First of all, let's look at Psalm 146 and verse 9. And we want to answer the question, how does God treat his enemies, strangers, aliens? Psalm 146 and verse 9 says, The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Or let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 10 for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, where it says, He executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and he shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Amazing statement there. To be a stranger, to be an alien outside of Israel. And God says that he shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Now, why did God choose Israel and bring the Messianic line through them? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, it says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he had sworn to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the land of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God did not choose the people of Israel because they were mighty. He didn't choose them because they were numerous. He didn't choose them because they were influential. He didn't choose them because they were wealthy. He didn't choose them because they had unbelievably natural gifts. He didn't choose them for any of those reasons. He decided to set his love upon them and to keep the promises that he had made to his forefathers. Those two things became really abundantly clear. So then the question comes, how did God expect the people of Israel to treat aliens and strangers among them? Well, this has been the operating question behind the narrative of the entire book of Ruth. It's not stated explicitly, but it operates there all the time. For example, if you were a Jewish man or woman living at the time of Ruth in the post days of the judges, then you would know quite well Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, there in Leviticus 19, he's not saying that we need to love ourselves more. In fact, nowhere in the Bible does that ever say that. The Bible always assumes that we love ourselves way too much. And if we loved ourselves, we loved other people to the same degree that we love ourselves, we'd have great relationships. Did you hear me? If we loved other people to the same degree and the same passion that we already love ourselves, we'd have great relationships. And this is what he assumes here. You shall love 
Who is this person? The stranger who resides among you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself, Leviticus 19 says. And then he reminds him, formerly you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The Jews had to remember where they came from. And you've got to understand too, that when it comes to loving someone that is seemingly detestable to you, you too at one time were detestable to God and under his judgment. And yet he chose to save you. And yet he chose to save you. Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 14. You can see this here. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. There's no place for the Jews to oppress those who are foreigners or aliens in the land. And then you fast forward to Psalm 37, verse 27. God makes it very clear, depart from evil and do good so you will abide forever. Proverbs 3 and verse 27, the, this is Solomon writing, who is the great, great grandson of Ruth, says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do, do it. And then you fast forward all the way to the New Testament to Romans chapter 13 and verse 9, where Paul says, for this, uh, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covenant. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, these texts and more help you to understand what God expects of his people, those who are truly redeemed. They themselves, in a sense, on an interpersonal level, become redeemers themselves. Now, we can divide our text here in Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 into three main central points. Number one, Boaz redeems Naomi's land. The second part, Boaz redeems Ruth's hand. And the third part, Boaz's redemption will stand. So let's take this first part, which has to do with Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And follow along as I read this text. It says, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the kinsman redeemer of whom Boaz spoke was passing by, so he said, turn aside, my fellow, sit down here. And he turned aside and it sat down. Then he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the fields of Moab, has to sell the portion of the field which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to uncover this matter in your hearing, saying, acquire it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if, you, if no one redeems it, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So in verse 1 
I want you to look at this. Boaz here is described as going up to the city gate of, of Bethlehem. And we've commented on this before. Bethlehem, you understand, had a threshing floor, but it was down in a valley where the winds would sweep through and they could throw the grain in the air and all the chaff would be blown away. But the city itself was actually built up on a nearby hillside. And so since the threshing floor was in the lower valley from the hill that Bethlehem was built upon, and that's where Boaz was doing his work, then Boaz had to go up to the city gate there in Bethlehem. The city gate was a location where official business and legal proceedings were established in those days. Today, we would have official proceedings done in courts. We would go down to the local court or the county courthouse or whatever the case may be. That's where the official standing would would take place. But here, official business, legal proceedings were established in the gates of the city. It was a natural place to make official judgments because, for example, if a person was put on trial and was judged guilty of a particular crime that merited removal from the city, then they would immediately be put outside of the gates of the city and not allowed to return. They would be, in a sense, in much the same way in terms of the way in which Paul talks about church discipline, they're removed from the protective graces of that city and exposed to all the elements in the world. That's what happens when a person is disciplined in a church. They're removed from the protective graces of that church and now exposed to the elements of the world. So what happens here, Boaz stages his legal proceedings in verses one and two. And I don't want you to miss the fact that Boaz is being very deliberate. He's being very strategic in what he's doing. Everything is very deliberate here. The gate of most Israelite cities in those days consisted of an outside gate and an inside gate on the left and right sides of that entrance area between the two gates were stone porticos and benches where people would sit and um, those coming or going would pass by between them. We know this because archaeology has unearthed many of these gates and we can see them today. The I've stood in some of the gates there in Israel. You can just stand there where people used to go back and forth and there are porticos on either side. There's an outer gate and there's an inner gate. And that's where judgments were, took place. The elders of the city then would often sit on these benches inside these porticos, and the residents of the city could go to them seeking advice or legal action. So Boaz positions himself on one of those seats and waits to see if this closer kinsman redeemer that we talked about in our last message uh, comes along, and eventually he does. And Boaz sees him. And notice what Boaz does here at this particular point. He encourages this closer kinsman redeemer, or the kinsman redeemer closest to Elimelech, to sit with him as he entered the gate of of Bethlehem. This is an interesting part of the story, but it's a very deliberate part of Ruth's story. You have a tendency when you read through it to look at it as something that's just kind of a non-essential sidetrack of what's going on with Ruth. It's not. It's critical to the entire book of Ruth what happens here. Don't miss that. So Boaz now encourages the kinsman redeemer closest to Elimelech to sit with him as he entered the gate of the city there in Bethlehem. 
The name of the man is never given in the text, and that's deliberate. The name of the man is never given in the text. We don't know who he was. And that's somewhat poetic justice since he never fully consents to be a kinsman redeemer. Uh, His name is lost to history. Boaz refers to him as friend. Notice that. Now, that's the way that most Bible versions translate it. The Hebrew term there means a certain one. And it was a term used in rabbinic literature to refer to someone that sometimes we would call today John Doe. (laughs) Hey, John Doe, would you like to sit here? It's purposely vague, but nevertheless a greeting. And it's possible that the use of the term meant that Boaz did not know the man well, but he did recognize him. He did recognize him. Boaz then encourages 10 elders of of Bethlehem to join them as witnesses to his legal proceedings for it to be formally binding. Just as we saw Ruth carefully following the instructions of Naomi, going through the Mosaic law throughout chapter 3, now we see Boaz carefully observing the customs and the laws of the city. He doesn't want to do anything that's going to be illegal or improper. And these elders, known known to be honest and trustworthy, could testify to the legitimacy of the proceedings. Now, why he chose 10 elders is not clear. According to the Torah, something could be established on the basis of two or three witnesses, as in Deuteronomy 17 and verse 6, as well as Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15. But Boaz may have called 10 elders to be overly cautious or careful about everything that was being done to establish this fact without question. We do know that centuries later that a Jewish marriage ceremony had to have 10 or more witnesses for a quorum in a synagogue in order for the marriage to be legal. But that doesn't happen for centuries. Now, whether or not this is established based upon what happens here with Boaz, there's a high probability of that. But 10 witnesses. In fact, this may be where actually that tradition in Judaism actually gets started. Now, Everyone now is present that needs to be present for Boaz's strategy to move forward. And it's time for him to present his case. So they all sit down to hear the matter before them. So he states his legal purpose in verses three and four. Boaz now has prepared a carefully planned strategy as he states his legal purpose for bringing these 11 men together. The way that he unfolds this case is masterful because he begins with the easiest part first because he understands how human nature works. All right. This is uh, any lawyer, any attorney examining what's going on here would do the same thing. They, in a sense, set the entire court up by giving the easiest part first and then drop a bomb later. This is exactly what Boaz does. He sets up the easy part first. His plan consists of two major steps here. First, 
seeking the redemption of Naomi's land, and then second, seeking the redemption of Ruth's hand. Each step is huge responsibility for kinsman redeemer. Together, they're an enormous commitment to assume if you are a redeemer. So, at, so Boaz now states that Naomi must sell part of the property that belonged to Elimelech because of her poverty. Now, if you've been following us through all 21 messages in the book of Ruth, this is new information. We didn't know this. We didn't even know Naomi still had property. This is all brand new stuff. Up to this point in the book, there's been no mention of Elimelech's property, no mention of Naomi attempting to sell it to survive. Elimelech never sold his land when he left for Moab. He was intending to return and reclaim it. That's why Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1 says that he went to sojourn in Moab. Now, if you were to go back to one of the earliest messages I did in the book of Ruth, I made a big deal out of that. That was purposeful. All right? I made a big deal out of the fact to sojourn meant not to stay permanently. To sojourn meant to go there temporarily. To sojourn meant I'm just going there for a temporary amount of time. I'm planning on coming back. So it makes sense because he still has property outside of Bethlehem. He wants this property. So he's intending to return and reclaim it. That's why in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1, it says he went down and sojourned in Moab, indicating that he did not intend to stay there at all. But when then supernatural events took over and he died in Moab, now things have radically changed. So now, after Naomi's return, she needs to sell the property. You must know that the Mosaic Covenant specifically stated that all the land ultimately belongs to Yahweh. All the land. Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 23, the land, God says, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. And you are but aliens and sojourners with me. That's significant. However, because of her poverty, Naomi needed to sell her husband's land. It could be that she could attempt to sell it, knowing that uh, on the year of Jubilee, the property eventually would be returned to her family. Now, that's significant. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 28. It says, But if he has not found sufficient means to get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchaser until the year of Jubilee, but at the Jubilee it shall revert that he may return to his property. So she could have put it up for sale, thinking that on the year of Jubilee, all of a sudden everything would revert back to original ownership. So was Naomi attempting to sell the field to acquire money to survive? Well, the kinsman redeemer would then buy the field, use it to produce crops or for grazing of animals until the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee occurred every 50 years. 
usually once in an average Israelite's lifetime. Then the original property would return to the original family estate, as Leviticus 25, verse 11 and verse 13 says. So it was a law that enabled families to acquire money during very tough times and eventually, later on, down the line, get their property back. There's a sense in which those that purchase the land, the kinsman redeemer coming along, is just basically buying a lease on the land until the year of Jubilee. That's basically it. So we can use the land for my personal profit, get whatever profitability I can out of that particular land, but eventually knowing that it's going to go back to the original seller of the land during the time of Jubilee. Now, I want you to note that Boaz deliberately speaks of the property first. There's no mention of Ruth at this particular point in his negotiations, and that's very purposeful, demonstrating uh, somewhat of a shrewd and cunning strategy. Notice how in verse 3, then, Boaz refers to Elimelech as our brother. You see that? Our brother. So Naomi's husband, Elimelech, is referred to as our brother. That may refer to the fact that Boaz and this closer redeemer were either brothers, which is not likely given the previous way that he referred to him as friend, or they were distant cousins, which is much more likely to Elimelech. So probably, we don't know exactly for sure, Boaz and this closer kinsman redeemer were probably distant cousins. So Boaz now states that the closer kinsman redeemer has the first right to buy the property to redeem it for Naomi. You can see that in the first part of verse 4. So the closer kinsman redeemer legally, legally had the first right of refusal on the property. According to Leverite law, he could buy it back. And ultimately, Yahweh makes it clear that all the land belongs to him, um, and we have plenty of examples of that throughout Scripture, Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23 through 28, but then a good example of that is Jeremiah 32, verses 6 through 12. So you've got to understand that the land was very precious to the Jews. It was a physical reminder of God's fulfilling his promises to them. So they really jealously guarded and protected their land as the most valuable inheritance. So this had to be a very hard thing for Naomi to do. That is, place her husband's land up for sale. But she had to do it because she was desperate. It was the only way that she and Ruth could survive. They were in such deep poverty. Then notice this. At the end of verse 4, the closest kinsman redeemer now agrees to purchase the property agrees to purchase the property. The kinsman redeemer with the first right of refusal agrees to buy the land. In fact, he probably saw this as not just a way to help Naomi, but a way to enlarge his own estate and his own earnings. It was a win-win for both the seller and the buyer. So he emphatically, and the Hebrew language is very clear, he emphatically says, I'll buy it. It's mine. I'll buy it. Right away. Imagine, you ever gone to an auction? All right? 
you know, where the guy's up there jabbering away. Type of that. That's just, just like one of those, ah, I'll buy it, type of thing. That's exactly what happens to this guy. He almost comes out of his chair, I think. I'll, I'll, I'll buy the land. I'll redeem it. I'll reclaim it as my own before anyone else outside the family claims it, he says. Now, this relative wants everyone to know that he is the one who will be the hero, and he's going to step up and buy Elimelech's land to save Naomi. Not only uh, can he be seen as the great savior, but it will also add to his land ownings and probably increase his own worth and his own production. So at this point in the story, you may think, oh my goodness, if you view this as a big love story between Boaz and Ruth, you're just in the depths of despair. This faceless, unknown character steps up into the story and upends everything that you expected. You know, you watch uh, sometimes some of these family channels on TV and you hear, see these movies, uh, these little romantic movies. This is what happens. You know, everything looks great until there's this third-party guy that steps in. All right. What in the world? Where did he come from? Now you're all disappointed. So this faceless, unknown character steps in and ruins the whole thing. Boaz may not become their kinsman redeemer after all. It would truly be disheartening to learn that the narrative would end here. But it doesn't. There's much more to this story. This is where Boaz juices up his strategy. And this was the, his whole goal the whole time. That is to test and make public this man's resolve. Every one of the 10 elders of the city heard this relative quickly make this intention uh, known, that is to purchase the property. So listen, there are many things in life that appear to be one way, but they end up being something entirely different. Have you ever been there? This is one of those occasions which now brings us to verses 4 and 5. Boaz redeems Ruth's hands. Verse 5 says this, Then Boaz said, On the day that you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, a widow of the one who had died, in order to raise up the name of the one who had died on behalf of his inheritance. So the kinsman redeemer says, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. What happened here? Now, Boaz's secret strategy is fully revealed here in verses 5 and 6. When you carefully read Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, the Mosaic Covenant does not require both the redeeming of the land and the marrying of Ruth. The letter of the Leverite law does not command those two things. However, Boaz is going to emphasize the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Did you hear me? He's going to emphasize the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. 
That's why we began the message the way that we did. This is really important to understand here. In verse 5, he essentially says to the closer redeemer, since you want to be so helpful, (laughs) you're going to need to marry Ruth, the Moabitess, as well. She is Malone's widow. Wait, what? You can almost hear him say. You can see his eyes widen. Mary, a Moabite? Are you serious? So he shows the legal parameters here in verse 5. This man said he wanted to be the hero by purchasing the property. Marrying Ruth was not part of his consideration, nor did he desire to do so. So Boaz shows that if the closest kinsman redeemer purchases the property for Naomi, then if he wanted to really be helpful, he would also take on the responsibility to marry Ruth. Wait a minute. All of a sudden, all that desire to be really helpful and the hero just went out the back door really fast. Buying a Limex property is the limit of his helpful sacrifice. He was willing to, to go partway as a redeemer, but he was not willing to go all the way. The fact that he must take on the responsibility to become her husband was one thing. The fact that he, she was a Moabitess was an additional straw that broke the proverbial camel's back. He was a well-respected landowner in Bethlehem. We know that. And if he were to marry her, his reputation among the citizens could radically change for the worse. Yet, even more unsettling for him was the agreement to bear half-breed children. Producing a child with Ruth was unthinkable for him. He does not appear helpful anymore. All of a sudden, his desire to appear to be a hero is not there anymore. So, Boaz now shows that if he marries Ruth, he will be responsible to produce an heir through her, through her to continue the line of Elimelech. Now, this is the worst of the worst for him. I'm sure this even caused a stir among the 10 elders witnessing the scene in order to raise up a name of the one who died on behalf of his inheritance, that is Malone, he would need to have children with Ruth. And his Jewish pride at this point is assaulted. And he loses any chance to be the man who helped to continue the line of the Messiah. Uh, We learn more in verse 6 about this man and his motives in, in trying to be, in a sense, a half-hearted kinsman redeemer. So let's take a look at verse 6. He solicits the legal permission. Boaz does that. The close family relative suddenly backs out of the agreement. Essentially, he says, oh, I can't do it. But he coaches, he, he, he couches it, I should say. He couches it within the framework of not being able to purchase the land. That was not a problem earlier, and for some reason, it is a problem now. So 
Boaz solicitation reveals that the closest kinsman redeemer cannot produce purchase the property and marry Ruth because it would endanger his own estate. This is what he says now, implying that suddenly he's realized, I can't buy this property because it would ruin this inheritance. That's a strange response. Would the property ruin his inheritance or would marrying Ruth, the Moabitess, ruin his inheritance? From his statement, it seems that one or both of his parents were still living. And if that's the case, um, it's very possible that he pridefully um, or proudly, his proudly Jewish parents would receive the news that he bought the property and married a Moabite woman. They would cut him off or even change their will when it came to their inheritance. So only to save face, he just mentions the property in verse 6. So then Boaz's solicitation reveals a deep fear in the closest kinsman redeemer. And it's obvious by the way in which Boaz has set this whole thing up and allowed it to play out uh, that this closest relative was not fit to be Ruth's husband or to purchase the property. So the question then comes... um, Why did he change his mind? That's such a critical question, don't you think? Why did he change his mind? Let me offer at least four options here of why he did this. Right within the cultural setting and what's going on in the book. Um, First of all, uh, was he too poor to support this land and a wife? Well, that doesn't seem to be the problem because... It seems like his quick ability to be able to say, hey, I can do this. I have the money to do it, is implied there. Um, now, it, however, it just seems like he's um, he just no longer wants to. Well, what about this? Was he afraid to marry a Moabitess because he could suffer the same fate maybe as Malone? And by the way, Malone died. He died as a young man. Was this God's judgment upon him for going and b- marrying a foreigner? What, what's going on there? Maybe he thought that Malone was dead as a judgment for God for marrying a Moabitess. He doesn't want to suffer the same fate. And even though this is possible, there's no hint in the text that this is what he was thinking. Or was he afraid that if Ruth bore a son... The son would inherit not only the redeemed property, but also his own property. Now, that's possible, but it's sheer speculation. Having a half-breed offspring would have caused a stir in the family and cut him off from his inheritance. That is possible. But having a child with Ruth does not seem to be the real reason, ultimately, even though that could be a part of it. Or what about this? Was he concerned that his family would cut him off from marrying a Moabitess? Now, this is the most likely possibility. Uh, some of you have had children that have grown up, and you know this even from your own if you've been married. When you marry into a family and you marry someone that maybe your family is not fond of, 
that causes ripples for years. This guy knew that. All right. If I'm going to marry this gal, this is going to cause major, major problems. He didn't want that. It fits the narrative that has been painted so far because there's an emphasis that Samuel, Samuel's the one who's writing Ruth. Samuel purposely inserts at key points throughout the book that Ruth is a Moabitess. Ruth is a Moabitess. Ruth is a Moabitess. If you add to this the additional shame of having a child by her, and that would just ultimately be too much for him to bear. So he totally, at the end of verse 6, surrenders his right to Boaz. Says, you do it. You do it. Which then brings us to the third part, which is verses now 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8. And follow along as I read in verse 7 and 8. And in fact, Samuel gives us a little bit of a historical cultural insight in verse 7. He says, now, this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning the right of redemption and the exchange of land to establish any manner a man remove his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, acquire this for yourself. And he removed his sandal. sandal. You say, now that's odd. That's strange to remove a sandal. Well, we have a lot of strange customs today too. All right. For example, um, the wearing of wedding rings. There's nothing in the Bible that says we need to wear wedding, wedding rings. Back when my wife and I were in Samara, Russia, a few years back, uh, the police pulled the, the pa- pastor of the, the Russian pastor and myself over. They can pull you over for anything if they want. And the Russian pastor said to me, let me talk. Well, I wasn't going to talk because I didn't know Russian. <laughs> All right. And he said, by the way, cover over your ring finger, so, which I did. I covered over my ring finger. So he talked with the guy, and the guy stuck his head in the car police officer came back. Well, you guys know what I'm talking about. (laughs) He stuck his head in the car and then he, he left. And I said to the pastor there, I said, what just happened here? He said, I just wanted to see if we were drunk. Do we look drunk? I don't know. By the way, I said, why did you want me to cover over my ring finger? He says, that's the first way they tell, um, oftentimes Americans is because they wear their ring on their left hand finger. It's the way they, that's the first way they do that. Ah, strange, because places in Europe, and I think sometimes even in Russia, they wear it on the right. Am I right on that? They wear the ring finger on the right. Yeah, so, um, anyhow, so we have strange customs too. So what's going on here? The, the closest kinsman redeemer relinquishes his right to Boaz to both purchase the property and to marry Ruth. Now, Now the way is clear for Boaz to move forward as witnessed by these 10 elders and to be the true kinsman redeemer. This is the most remarkable and unexpected change of events at this particular point. So he secures his legal um, property in verse 7. The ancient custom in verse 7 seems somewhat odd to us today, but it's packed full of significance to the people of Old Testament Israel. It was a formal legal action done before witnesses in surrendering your property and rights to another person. 
So Boaz secures the sandal from the closest kinsman redeemer to show that he has the right to walk on the redeemed property as his own. That's the whole idea behind it. By the way, to prove it, I've got this guy's sandal, and everybody knows what that guy's sandal looks like. All right? So to give someone your sandal in the presence of the elders of the city meant you were formally giving up any right to your land, to the land. Your sandal treading the land was a sign of a right of ownership. To surrender your sandal to another person signified that you were giving up your right of ownership. That was a tradition that began way back in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, and continued for centuries right up to the time of Amos, the prophet Amos. So now God condemns the northern tribes of Israel through the prophet Amos for the horrible way that they treated righteous people um, especially the pov- those in poverty among them. So Naomi and Ruth were righteous and poor, and this close family relative did not want to have anything to do with them. Thus saith the Lord in Amos chapter 2 and verse 6, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not remove its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. So, as to buy, Amos chapter 8 and verse 6, so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals, and that we may sell the refuge of the, uh, of the wheat. So, if God condemned Israel during the time of Amos for such practices, he would certainly not look with favor upon this close relative. He only wanted to purchase the property if it was going to enhance his holdings. He was not concerned about the welfare of Naomi. He was not concerned about the welfare of Ruth. He wanted to enhance his own holdings. So now Boaz secures this sandal in the presence of the 10 elders of Bethlehem, thereby making it legally binding. And this was the action that made this relinquishing of the right legal. Boaz can now walk on the land as his own once he purchased it from Naomi and Ruth. He could now legally marry Ruth, fulfill the design of the true kinsman redeemer. Boaz was willing to assume the possible disgrace of marrying a Moabite woman because he saw in her Yahweh's loving kindness. That's why in one of our previous messages back in chapter 3 and verse 10, I made such a big deal out of that. What he saw in her far exceeded any Jewish woman that he had ever met in his time. The closest relative did not know what he was losing because he viewed it as being something that was going to be disgraceful to him. But that did not matter to Boaz. Didn't matter to him. He sustains his legal protection. Boaz now in a sense, sustains his legal right to provide and protect Naomi, Ruth, and their property. Yahweh's plan of redemption takes a huge step forward here in Scripture at this point. This was all done above board and legally, and as we said before, behind a frowning providence is his smiling face. When you do things God's way, 
He always has good in store for his people. That is always true. So Boaz now sustains his right, and the unknown closest kinsman redeemer slips into obscurity while Boaz is remembered throughout of history. Slips into obscurity. That's the irony of these events. The man who was the closest to Naomi as being a kinsman redeemer ends up forfeiting his right due to public disdain for a Moabite woman. Because of his careless treatment of Naomi and Ruth, this man is never known throughout history. Boaz becomes um, very well known in Israel and in later generations, so much so that when his great-great-grandson Solomon builds the first temple in Jerusalem, he names one of the main pillars outside of the temple Boaz. It's the name. Boaz's name now appears in the genealogies of Jesus Christ. It did not matter to Boaz whether Ruth was Moabitess or not. He had observed her godly character, and he was moved with compassion towards her and Naomi. Therefore, Boaz becomes like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It does not matter who we are. He looks upon the heart of man, and he redeems us when we are undeserving. Let me close with this. Many of you know the name Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was a man best known as a CEO and co-founder of Apple Incorporated. He passed away on October 5th, 2011 from complications due to pancreatic cancer. At the time of his passing, Jobs had a net worth of around $10.8 billion, with a B, dollars. When he was young, his parents required that he attend a Lutheran church. But he decided at the age of 13 to turn his back on all religion. As he lies dying on a hospital bed, he was reported to have said this, and I'm going to quote his words. Listen to what Steve Jobs says. Worth $10.8 billion. He says, I have come to the pinnacle of success in business. In the eyes of others, my life has been a symbol of success. However, apart from work, I have little joy. Finally, my wealth is simply a fact to which I am accustomed. At this time, lying on a hospital bed and remembering all my life, I realize that all the accolades and the riches of which I was once so proud have become insignificant with my imminent death. In the dark, when I look at the green lights, the equipment for the artificial respiration, and feel the buzz of their mechanical sounds, I can feel the breath of my approaching death looming over me. Only now do I understand that once you accumulate enough money for the rest of your life, you have to pursue objectives that are not related to wealth. It should be something more important. For example, stories of love, art, dreams of my childhood. No, he says, stop pursuing wealth. It can only make a person into a twisted being 
just like me. Then he says, listen to this, God, but he had turned his back on God. On his deathbed, he's saying, God has made us this way. We can feel the love in the heart of each of us and not illusions built by fame or money like I made in my life. I cannot take them with me. I can only take with me the memories that were strengthened by love. This is the true wealth that will follow you, will accompany you. He will give strength and light to go ahead. Love can travel thousands of miles, so life has no limits. Move to where you want to go. Strive to reach the goals you want to achieve. Everything is in your heart and in your hands. What is the world's most expensive bed? The hospital bed. You, if you have money, you can hire someone to drive your car, but you cannot hire someone to take your illness that is killing you. Material things lost can be found, but one thing you can never find when you lose is life. Whatever stage of life where we are now, at the end, we will have to face the day when the curtain falls. Please treasure your family love, love for your spouse, love for your friends. Treat everyone well and stay friendly with your neighbors, end of quote. Like the closest kinsman redeemer who chose to protect his inheritance and reject a Moabite woman, Ruth, Steve Jobs lived for the wealth and chose not to be associated with Christ. Just as Esau, the unnamed kinsman redeemer, forfeited his opportunity to be a critical link in the lineage of the Messiah for his wealth, he gave up his birthright, so to speak, for a pot of porridge. And Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, the book of Ruth is a tremendous book because it ties together so much in all of redemptive history for us to understand. And Father, we come face to face with his closest kinsman redeemer who himself had the wealth and had the ability to be able to step in and be a true redeemer but chose not to because of the disgrace that marrying a Moabite woman would carry He wasn't a true redeemer. He didn't care for them. He cared about increasing his own estate. Father, we can adopt similar attitudes today, but if we're truly redeemed and we realize how you have stepped into our life, even when we were detestable and undeserving and saved us, may we be gracious, caring, and loving to those around us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.